the Acts of the Apostles. I'm trying to find my place in my notes. Hold on. That's okay, bro. That's okay. You gotta get a more, you know, uplifting down there. Um, yes. To us, the day of Pentecost is indeed the feast of first fruits, and that of the giving of the better law, written not in tables of stone, but on the fleshly tables of the hearts. Remember, Pentecost of the Jews commemorated the giving of the law on Sinai. Okay? And so now he says, it is written now not on tables of stone, but on the fleshly tables of the heart, with the spirit of the living God. For as the worshippers were in the temple, probably just as they were offering the wave lambs and the wave bread. What's the wave lambs and wave bread? I, I, to be honest with you, I don't know, except there's also the wave sheaves earlier in Exodus. I can just imagine they're offered to God by lifting them up in, into the air or something like this. I don't know. Um, but um, the wave lambs and the, and the wave loaves, uh, the wave bread. The multitude heard that, that sound from heaven as a mighty rushing wind. So as the offering of Pentecost was being done in the temple, the Spirit of God came down and all the people of Jerusalem heard it. And which drew them to the house where the apostles were gathered there to hear every man in his own language, the wonderful works of God. And on that day, on, and on that Pentecost day, from the harvest of the first fruits, not less than three thousand souls added to the church were presented as a wave offering to the Lord. The cloven tongues of fire and the and the apostolic gifts of that day of first fruits have indeed long since disappeared. But the mighty rushing sound of the presence and power of the Holy Ghost has gone forth into all the world. From Edersheim, he's a, oh. a Jewish a Christian. Christian Jew. Christian, Jewish, whatever. Um, we had talked about the connection. I just want to remind you real quickly about the three major feasts of the Jews. Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And their corresponding significance. Each one had a naturally occurring significance found in the order of nature. Okay, so for Passover, the dedication of the harvest. Okay, it was the dedication of the barley harvest because the barley was the first to come to, to seed or whatever. Okay, and that was offered in the temple at the end of Passover. Was the, they would take these big sheaths or the, the, the a cluster or whatever, a bundle of the of the um, of the barley and wave it in the air before the Lord, dedicating their harvest that they would conclude 50 days from that point to the Lord. And so on the Feast of Pentecost, 50 days later, um, is uh, the Feast of the Harvest, the conclusion of the harvest, and loaves of bread were offered, right? From the wheat to the baked loaf, right? Um, and finally, the fruit harvest for the Feast of Booths later in the season. It was the most glorious feast of the Jews. By the way, during Advent, I was thinking it might be nice for us to have three classes on the feasts of the Jews and their significance in the Christian calendar. Yes? Yes, okay. Um, which I will be learning a lot from my computer to do that. And then corresponding to that natural order is also the spiritual order of the life of Israel. And so Passover was... Well, Passover and the Exodus in, in uh, Egypt, right? The Feast of Pentecost, 50 days from leaving, um, 
leaving Egypt, they arrived at Mount Sinai and received the law. So it was the gift of the law. Okay? And the Feast of, uh, of Booths is questionable. We can talk about that later. It's, it's debatable what aspect of the life of Israel it's being, it, this correspondence is. So open up to Acts. Chapter 2. By the way, we're gonna, what we're going to get through today is going to finish our slow stuff, and then we're going to really be able to fly. So... Chapter 2, verse, uh, verse, I'm go back to verse 5 and keep reading through, um, through 21, just for context. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Amphilia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said it had <coughs> Peter addressed the crowd. Um, then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I said. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who falls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay. First of all, just a couple things about what's being said there, and then we're going to look back to Joel for a little context. When we hear that the, the sun will be turned to, uh, or the, was it moon turned to blood and the sun turned to darkness, or whatever it is, what's that sound like? Yeah, the end of the world. And we hear Jesus talking that way in, uh, in the Gospels, don't we? Okay, in Luke chapter 21, I believe it is, where he makes all these references that sound like the end of the world. Okay? In fact, let's look at it real quick. Chapter Luke 21, 9. Might as well. Actually, go back to 21, verse 5. Verse 5. 21, verse 5. Luke 21, 5. And his son spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. He said, As for these things which you see, the days will come when there shall not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
And they asked him, teacher, when will this be? And what will be the sign when this is about to take place? And he said, take heed that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid. For this must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Uh, then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and various famines and pestilence, and so on and so on. Great signs in the sky and all this. And he goes on. It sounds like he's speaking of the end of the world. And there's a difficult passage. Our Lord goes on to say that this generation will not pass away until these things come to be. So how are we to understand them? For we know that that generation passed away. For the Jews, when a nation or a kingdom was to come to its end, oftentimes, we could say apocalyptic language, end of the world language was used. When they talked about the end of the Babylonian uh, empire, it was talked about in terms of the darkening of the sky. We'll see back in Joel, the same text is referenced. Okay? An empire saw itself as the heart of the world. Every empire did, as that which ruled the world. And so when an empire came to an end, it was the end of an age. And so oftentimes in the Old Testament, this apocalyptic language was used to point to the end of the empire that was reigning at the time. Okay? And so here again we see in Acts that St. Luke makes references, or St. Peter himself makes references back in Joel. So what's, what's he talking about? The end of what? Is he talking about the end of the world? Go back to Joel real quick. I shouldn't say real quick. It's going to probably take you a little bit. Go to Maccabees. You know where Maccabees is, right? At the end of your Old Testament. And then scan backwards. Zechariah, Zephaniah, Micah, Amos. If you see Amos, Joel is next going backwards. If you get to Hosea, you've gone too far. You got to Daniel, you've gone way too far. Ezekiel, you've definitely gone too far. Joel is a very short text, but we're just going to scan Joel some different areas because I think it's something that is a is a great learning lesson for us in reading the Bible. While you guys are getting there, I want to say one thing. When I said the other night about throwing your televisions in the trash. No way. We we have to see example that oftentimes we caught up doing other things when when our Lord's given us the sacred text to read and meditate on and we don't have time to do it. And this is a good example that here in Acts Joel is referenced and we keep reading through Acts and we get frustrated because we never got anything out of it. But if we go back and meditate upon the earlier text that it's quoting, all of a sudden the text of Acts can come alive for us. Okay? So it's just a good example of something we can do in our lives besides watching television. Alright. When is Joel writing? Mm. Does it say that there? 400 BC? It's actually not all that clear when he's writing. There's a debate of whether Joel is writing before the Babylonian exile or after the Babylonian exile. Okay, he may be a, a pre-exilic prophet or a post-exilic prophet. Well, what does that matter? 
It matters because it depends on what he's saying and who he's talking to. If he talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, which he does, and he's a post-exilic prophet, he's talking about a destruction of Jerusalem, not of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, which had already happened, but of a future destruction that is going to take place. In fact, there's many of the minor prophets, the post-exilic prophets, that are writing during this time after the Babylonian exile, the return from Babylon, and before the coming of Christ, that talk about this future destruction of the temple and, this, and the destruction of Jerusalem. Okay? It's very interesting because our Lord begins to talk about that same thing. Okay, in fact, he talks about himself in reference to that when he says, destroy this temple and I will rebuild it in three days. Our Lord uses language which was familiar to the Jews that a prophet would have used. Okay, and Joel here seems to use similar language. What's interesting for us is that Luke understands Joel as not writing prophesying the Babylonian captivity, but he understands him as prophesying the time of the coming of Christ. So he interprets him as a post-exilic prophet. Okay? So, chapter 1, verse 1 of Joel. The word of the Lord came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you aged men. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. What, what the cutting locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust has left, the destroying locust has eaten. So what's going on? What's he talking about? What are they eating? The harvest. Now remember, Luke is quoting this text in the context of what feast? Pentecost which was the feast of the harvest for the Jews. So you see what I'm saying? All of a sudden, Acts comes alive here because he's bringing in for the Jews a whole context of Joel, which would have been the fingertips of these people. He, they knew when he starts, when St. Peter starts quoting this, they knew the whole context of Joel. This whole prophecy of the destruction of their harvest. Just at the point when they're offering the offering of the harvest. And look what comes next in verse 5. Awake you drunk drunkards and weep and wail all you drinkers of wine. What did they just accuse the apostles of? Being drunk. Being drunk. Ah, interesting. Now why, what the context of that is and why, what's the connection? I don't know. But that's one of those ones you can meditate on late at night in bed. Okay, I was seeing that last night and I was like, wow, that's cool. Alright. Look at verse 17. The seed shrivels under the clods. The storehouses are desolate. The granaries are ruined because the grain has failed. Okay, the harvest has failed. And chapter 2, verse 1. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy mountain. Okay, Jerusalem. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Remember back at the end that you were reading in Acts. It speaks about the day of the Lord. It says, the day of the Lord is at hand. The day of the Lord is coming and is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains. A great and powerful people. Their light, their light has never been from of old, nor will it be again after them. Through the years of all generations. 
fire devours before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but after them a desolate wilderness, and nothing escapes them. What did the Jews believe about Jerusalem? What was it? The ancient location of the Garden of Eden. Okay, so Joel is prophesying here the destruction of Jerusalem. Look at verse 12. Yet even now, says the Lord, return to me with all your hearts, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and repent of evil. Very shortly in Acts, we're going to find that they come. That those who convert say to the apostles, what are we to do? And they say, repent. The exact same thing is being said in Joel. In verse 14, you see the repetition of that. Who knows whether he will not turn and repent? Okay, in verse 18, you get that classic turn of the prophet. Halfway through every prophecy, he goes from condemning the people to what? To doing what? For telling God's mercy. Yeah, for telling God's mercy. Every prophet has those two aspects to him. And here, Joel turns in verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. Okay, and he goes on. Look at verse 28. And it shall come to pass afterward that I pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. What's This is the text that Luke is quoting, right? Or that Peter's quoting in Acts. Okay? Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions, even upon the man's, men's servant and the maidservant. In those days I will pour out my spirit. Now, what I want you to do is if, you, if you're not in Acts, keep your hand there in Joel and go back to Acts. Because I want to sh- show you a parallel that's going on here. Keep your hand in both places. Acts chapter 2. <laughs> Chapter 2, verse 19. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and the signs in the earth beneath. Blood and fire, vapors of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and manifest day. And it shall be that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Feel free, there's other chairs you can grab. One of these chairs, sir. If you want this to look, you're looking for somebody? So, no? I brought somebody. Is that him? Yeah? Oh, yeah, you can go back there if you want. Okay. There's more chairs. Grab the other chair. There's one right there. Look, there's one right there. Okay, now look at this, guys. Come back, come back. Pay attention. Look at verse, look at verse 21 in Acts. Chapter 2, verse 21. Stay with me now. Everybody here? And it shall be that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Keep your hand there and go back to Joel. Okay? Verse 32. And it shall come to pass that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered, shall be saved. Okay? Now go back to Acts. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Now this is Peter speaking. He ends the quote. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus now he goes on. Okay? Now, go back to Joel. Now, before you start reading, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be saved? Don't give me an answer that you would hear in, uh, in um, 
the middle of a, um, what? I don't know. In the middle of a revival, yeah. Are you saved, brothers? Are you saved? That's not the way the Jews understood salvation. Yes, it had to do with our, the salvation of our souls. But for the Jews, salvation was very much tied to the restoration of Israel. A very material and a very real thing. It is very real and very material for Catholics today. Okay? So when he talks about the salvation of the Jews, he's not just talking about going to heaven. Okay? Being saved from your enemies in the Old Testament. Being saved from the Egyptians. Being saved from the Babylonians. And so forth. Saved from the wrath of God. Saved from the wrath of God. Yeah, and it always had to do with the real establishment of Israel and Jerusalem. Looking at Joel then, look at where he finishes, verse 32. And it shall come to pass that all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, Mount Zion is one of the hills in Jerusalem. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those who call upon the Lord. Okay, yes. What name is that in Joel? Call upon the name of the Lord. Ah, that's a good question. We're going to get to that in a second. Okay? I have a question. Yes. At, at, at the time of the Acts of the Apostles, because I, I went to Jerusalem this last summer, they the, the, the temple was a magnificent place at the time of Christ. Yeah. And so during the Acts of the Apostles, again, uh, I mean, the, the temple was a magnificent place. Jerusalem was a, was a, 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 a big city. I mean, right. a temple that size. Right. So it seems like that would be a time of, of height and, and glory for the Jews. Absolutely. And it definitely was. We're going to look at that very issue. Okay? Let's keep... Notice, so notice where Peter leaves off. He doesn't even conclude the verse or conclude the sentence. He leaves off... And if you know Joel well, you know what he leaves implicit in his text. Okay? That there will be some that will flee Jerusalem and be saved. And implied in that is that many will die, many will be destroyed in the destruction of the place they're fleeing. Keep reading. Uh, you saw the Joel? Joel, yes. You guys have a different verse? All right, hold on. Hold on. Don't do it. Hold on. Wait, wait. This is a good example. The chapter and verse are later editions. So, you, you know where we're at? What, what is it? Chapter 3, verse 5. Chapter 3, verse 5, if you were not able to follow me. Chapter 3, verse 5, okay? All right. Keep reading. Chapter 3, verse 1. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. What has just happened in Jerusalem that is being quoted in Acts? Remember, it's Pentecost Day and who has come there? All the nations. Right? I will gather all the nations and bring them to the valley of Jehoshaphat and will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people and my heritage Israel because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided them among them. They scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land and have cast lots for my people. What did the apostles just do? Just prior to Pentecost. 
Yes. Yeah, remember they cast lots. Now what's the connection? Again with the drunkenness point a chapter earlier. I'm not actually sure. I can't tell you. But there's one to meditate on late in bed at night. Because I can guarantee you, Peter knew what Joel said. And he knew what had just happened in Jerusalem. Okay? So, it's a good thing to meditate on. Is there another question there? Yes. Well, the Valley of Jehoshaphat's not in Jerusalem. I, that's, that's, we talk in the area of the Jezreel Valley and uh, probably maybe Dome and so forth. Probably. I don't think this is talking about the believers in Jerusalem. I think this is the nations that come against Israel and Joel. When you see, if you continue to read in Joel, there's, there's two things going on. There's a nation which comes against Israel, and there's also the restoration of Israel on the other side. In a sense, the destruction of the sinful, of the sinful people dwelling in Jerusalem, and then some will escape. There will be some survivors. And then Joel begins to talk about the people of God who he's gathering together, the survivors, and he gathers together men from all nations. So there's two, you're right, that there's that aspect of it, and there's the other aspect of the restoration of Israel, okay, the restoration of the kingdom of God, and this drawing together of all peoples. Okay? So I encourage you, go back and read Joel closely. Okay, meditate on it and see if you draw some of the other images out that Peter may be using as a background. Yes. One, one more quick question. I'm yeah. sorry I didn't do this though. No, that's okay. But it looks like, I mean, if this is time about the day of the Lord where he judges the nations that come against Jerusalem, look at verse 15. Okay. It says, The sun and the moon shall be dark and the stars shall withdraw their shining. And that didn't happen during the time of the Pentecost. Yeah, we just talked about that before you came in. So maybe afterwards we can come up and talk. Okay. All right. Um, go back to Acts then. As we keep that in mind, and we're talking about in Joel, we're gonna. There's a reality that's true for the church in Jerusalem, a realization in our hearts, and it's just now that we're starting to get a sense of it in Acts. But it's going to continue on a sense that there is an oncoming destruction of Jerusalem. And they do things which the rest of the church doesn't do. For example, they sell all their property off. Okay? It was believed that the, Jew, that the Christians in Jerusalem fled Jerusalem just before its destruction. Okay? So there's all these things that are, that are true about the church in Jerusalem that aren't true about the church's other places. And it all ties into this understanding of the future of the people of God. And going tying back into Joel and the survivors who will flee. Okay. Um, can I? Yes. Um, the destruction of, of the temple is again reflecting on this, this last summer was a result of the uh, revolt on the part of the Jews against the Romans. Yes. Right? And my understanding is that the, the, the Jews, um, those that wanted to revolt, those that didn't want to revolt, led to almost like a civil war and they were killing each other, um, and which would have, just, you can imagine, it was a horrible time. <coughs> would that have also played into this where, you know, things were, people were fleeing for their lives because if they were unwilling to be part of the revolt, they would have, they would have fled. It's possible. It's possible. Um, okay, verse 21. We talked about that name. What is that name? 
And it shall be that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you're still in, if you're still in Joel, if not, you can turn there if you want. It's up to you. But you'll notice back in the Old Testament when when uh, Lord is written, you'll see it's all in caps. Okay, what do they call it? small caps? They'll do a, the big cap for the L, and this is in small caps. Okay, why is that? Why is that? Anyone know? Help us. It's okay. What's that? Yeah. Yeah, it was Yahweh. In those texts where you see Lord in the Old Testament, Yahweh was used. Okay? And because the Jews did not pronounce, at least later on in their history, did not pronounce the name Yahweh, they would now I do give a little caveat. I don't know Hebrew. Okay, so I'm simply relating to you what I've what I've read and found out. But they replaced it with Adonai. Adonai, I Adonai. Something like that. Okay? And the vowel pointing was replaced with Adonai. That's where you get the, the confusion between Jehovah and Yahweh. Okay, the Jehovah's Witness. Jehovah is a is a mispronunciation. Okay. In other words, it's the consonants of Yahweh with the vowels of Adonai. Exactly. Exactly. Um Adonai is is the Hebrew, but when it's translated into Greek in the Septuagint. Yahweh is left out, yeah, in Kyrios, was used. Lord is simply used there, okay? So if you look at the Greek of Joel in the Septuagint, <coughs> Yahweh is completely gone from the text, and Kyrios replaces it, okay? With the realization that they're speaking about Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, okay? Looking at accent. Chapter 2, verse 21. And it shall be that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, Acts is being written in what language? Greek. So what word's being used there? Kyrios. The name of the Lord. What name of the Lord? Who are they talking about? What name will save them? It's not all that clear in the text here. However, if we were reading it in the original Greek... The parallel between Joel and between what's being quoted in Acts is identical. Okay? So we'll keep reading. Just keep that in mind. Men of Israel, verse 22. Beth, you want to keep reading for us? Verse 22. Men of Israel, you know, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs which God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, having loosed the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will dwell in hope, for thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let thy holy one see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, thou wilt make me full of gladness with thy presence. 
Brethren, I'll just keep reading. Brethren, I may say to you confidently that the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and that his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants upon his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. Now, what's difficult and interesting here is that is that Saint Peter is using two Old Testament texts. He's quoted one of the Psalms, okay, and look back to verse twenty-six. Therefore, my heart was glad. This is David writing. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will dwell in hope. For thou wilt not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let thy holy one see corruption. Now, St. Peter's going to go ahead and interpret that for us down below. Okay? It's that text that he's going to interpret. That is, the soul will not be abandoned to Hades, and the holy one will not see corruption. Verse 29. Brethren, I may say to you confidently the patriarch that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So he's saying, look, there's proof that David could not have been speaking about himself. Okay? Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants upon his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Okay? So he goes and interprets one of the psalms, saying, that psalm was written for Jesus Christ. It clearly couldn't have been speaking about David, because David both died and was buried. Okay. Now, what's also interesting, he throws another text in the middle here in verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him, that he would, not, that he would set one of his descendants upon his throne. What, what reference is that? Yeah, but what reference to the Old Testament is that? Extremely important reference. It's probably in your footnote there. Is it? It should be. It's 2 Samuel 7. I want you to turn there just as an uh, exercise in um, good biblical practice. 2 Samuel 7. This text is extremely important because it is the text of the Davidic covenant. It's the covenant which God made with David, the king. It's essential because throughout the New Testament, this, this chapter is constantly quoted. And it's constantly quoted in reference to Jesus. Just as Peter just used his soul to point to Jesus, this text is always referenced. Okay? Verse 12, chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, hold on. Remember back in Acts, what did the apostles ask our Lord before he ascended? Without this time, restore the kingdom. Exactly. Yes, yes. All right. Verse 13. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Again, reflecting upon Joel okay, and the prophets who prophesied the future destruction of Jerusalem. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. Why would they apply this to Jesus? Why does St. Luke apply this to Jesus in Acts? This text. 
What do you think? It's right there in verse 13. First of all, he's talking about David's offspring, right? Who's David's offspring? Who's David's offspring? Who's his son? Solomon, right? And Solomon does what? What's the great thing Solomon does? He builds the temple. Okay? And notice what the prophecy says about him. He shall build my, the house for my name, and I will establish his throne forever. What's going on at this time among the Jews? About the throne in Jerusalem. Was there a king on the throne for the Jews? No, in fact, it's a time of great expectation that God would send the king to reestablish the throne in Jerusalem. Okay? The Jews were expecting that God would reestablish his throne because of this promise that he would establish his throne forever. And it was that text that the early Christians saw as fulfilled in Jesus Christ, in Jesus the King, the Messiah. Okay? So turn back to Acts. You keep that in your mind, 2 Samuel 7, one of the most important texts in the whole Old Testament for understanding who Jesus is. Let's read it. Beth, go ahead and read it again from verse 29. Brethren, I may say to you confidently of the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants upon his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this which you see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make thy enemies a stool for thy feet. Notice, notice what the apostles are doing, or what St. Peter is doing here. In order to give a defense for Christ, what does he do? He turns to Old Testament text after Old Testament text, constantly showing that Jesus Christ is not something that the Jews should be offended by. This is not something new, but something very much part of what they expected. This will be constant throughout Acts of the Apostles. Whenever the Apostles are called to give a witness for Jesus Christ, they say, look at the Old Testament, look at what it said, and they read it properly. And when read properly, they expect that the Jews will come to the realization of who Jesus is. Okay? Chapter 2. What's that? Chapter In Acts chapter 2, yes. Is it because of the fact that Christ rose from the dead? And that in this in this argument here, that is that means that his kingdom can last forever because it is, a, it is the death of the king, i.e., the death of David, yeah. that meant that his reign ended. And so, if Christ does did not die, yeah. it never. Ended. Yeah, in some that's definitely true. And in fact, Peter's point is he's going to continue, the apostles are going to continually give a witness, and their main witness is that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. The death does not hold him. Okay? But also, it's not just that Saul, David died and Solomon died, okay, and then all the kings after him died, but that the throne itself was in question. Okay? Because the throne itself was empty. 
In fact, it hadn't been reestablished, really hadn't been reestablished since the fall of the, ba- uh, the, uh, the destruction of the Babylonian, the Babylonian exile. So, okay, so we're looking around saying, what is going on? We know this prophecy to be true. What is God doing? And when is he going to fulfill this? Okay, so their expectation is there. Okay, and but also on a physical the realm, it's not just Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, and the, and the apostles see him as enthroned, as we talked about in heaven. That's also true. But there is a real establishment of the kingdom of Israel on earth that they are giving a witness to. Okay, the establishment of the twelve apostles fulfilling the, the twelve tribes. Okay, and now they're going to go out and do what Israel of old was supposed to do. As we read through Acts, they see themselves as not as something different than the Jews or different than the kingdom of Israel. They are the true kingdom of Israel. Okay, yeah. You made the point that the folks in the book of Acts, to prove their points, kept going back to the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. I mean, you think we should go back to the Old Testament to look at doctrines? And I mean, should we use the Old Testament for our proof as, of truth as well? Absolutely. Sure. I mean, it's a, it's a, one of the resources of theology, yeah, the, script, the whole of the scriptures, so definitely. Yeah. I mean, if we try to, it's a good question. If we try to understand the Eucharist, apart from its Old Testament background, then all of a sudden we're going to start making up all sorts of theology which has no real foundation in its original understanding. Okay, If we try to understand baptism apart from the scriptures and apart from the Old Testament, if we separate it from the flood, the crossing of the Red Sea, all of these prefigurements of baptism in the Old Testament, suddenly we're going to talk about baptism as, um, well, this, whatever, this nice thing we do to kids on, you know, after church on Sunday that makes them, I don't know, you know, you choose. I don't, you know what I'm saying? No. But if we tie it to our Old Testament background, all of a sudden it becomes rich and the meaning that it had for the early Christians comes out and suddenly the things we're doing make sense. Okay? Plus Jesus said that uh, they're not one job or two. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, but there's another question out there? No. Okay. Um, let's, let's keep reading that. Verse 36. Therefore, let the whole house of Israel know beyond any doubt that God has made both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Translate that for me, Messiah, or Christ. Some of your text say Christ. The anointed, right? Well, don't just give me the Hebrew. <laughs> uh, um, it means anointed. But for the Jews, what, who is that person? Who is the one that gets anointed? The king. The king. Okay, so whenever you see that, don't, don't allow the, the text to get in the way of it. Translate it, king. Okay, he is lord and king. What they are preaching is something quite, very radical. Okay, keep going, Evan. When they heard this, they were deeply shaken. They asked Peter and the other apostles, What are we to do, brothers? Peter answered, You must reform and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, that your sins may be forgiven, that you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It was to you and your children that the promise was made, and to all those still far off whom the Lord our God calls. Okay. 
a little apologetic point or something to consider here is that some people will take this text about baptism and they're saying, repent and be baptized in the name of who? In the name of Jesus. Right? So some take that and what do they do with it? They baptize in the name of Jesus. Now what does our Lord say at the end of the Gospels before the Ascension? Go therefore and baptize what? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Okay? So there's a little confusion here. Okay? Baptism in the early church was always given in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptizing in the name of of the Lord in the name of Jesus is simply a way of saying, be baptized as a Christian. Be baptized into Jesus Christ. Why do we know that? Because consistently, as the earliest evidence, all the way back to the Didache, written in the first century, baptism was always done in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? St. Basil, quoting or making uh, a comment on this text, very beautiful. I read it to you earlier, and it draws back to something that is extremely important for us in Acts as we keep pushing forward. Okay, so I'm going to quote it, and then another little quote from the Navarre commentary, which is excellent. So keep continue this thought. In the same way as transparent bodies, when light shines on them, become resplendent and bright, souls elevated and enlightened by the Holy Spirit become spiritual too, and lead others to the light of grace. From the Holy Spirit comes knowledge of future events, understanding of mysteries and hidden truths, an outpouring of gifts, heavenly citizenship, heavenly citizenship, conversation with angels. From him comes never-ending joy, perseverance in good, likeness to God, and the most sublime thing imaginable, becoming God. The divinization which occurs in a baptized person shows how important it is for Christians to cultivate the Holy Spirit who has been infused into their souls where he dwells as long as he is not driven out by sin. Love, love the third person of the sorry, love the person of the Blessed Trinity. Listen to the intimacy of your being and the divine motions of encouragement or reproach you receive from him. Walk through the earth in the light that is poured out in your soul. We can apply, we can apply this, the, ourselves the question asked by the apostles. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? And we can understand it as an invitation to deal with God in a more personal and direct manner. For some, unfortunately, the paraclete is the great stranger. He is merely a name that is mentioned, but not someone. Not one of the three persons of the one God with whom we can talk and with whose life we can live. No, we have to deal with him simply and trustingly as we are taught by the church in its liturgy. Then we will come to know our Lord better and at the same time we will realize more fully the great favor that was granted us when we became Christians. We, we will see all the greatness and truth of this divinization which is a sharing in God's own life. The rest of the Acts of the Apostles will be, we will see in the work of the Apostles this reality of the divinization of man, that the Holy Spirit has been granted to them to make them participators in the divine nature. When Jesus Christ said, if you have faith enough, you can move mountains, he was serious. And he was serious because God can move mountains. 
And if God can move mountains and we become sharers in God's life, then we can also do what God does. If Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we also are destined to rise from the dead. If Jesus Christ healed people, we too are destined to reach out our hand and heal humanity. It's true. It's what the Catholic Church teaches. Don't ever think for a moment that we are struggling along by our own power and God's over there kind of laughing at us from a distance or, or whatever it may be. If we put ourselves at the hand of God, He will use us in His own time to bring about the restoration of the kingdom of Israel. And we're going to see that in the text as we keep reading. Look at verse 38 again. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. When's the last time in the text we saw the name mentioned? Something about a name. Yeah, in verse 21. And it shall be that whoever calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. And suddenly it says, they say, what shall we do? And they say, be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you look back to verse 21 and verse 22, just following upon the end of Joel in verse 22, it says, men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? There still is some question about what's meant here, but it seems to be indicating that the name, the Kyrios, that the Jews knew from the Old Testament as Yahweh in Joel, was being understood in the person of Jesus Christ. Yes? Well, do you think the, the name of the Messiah was important? Others, we use an English name today, but obviously he didn't walk the earth with the name Jesus because number one, they didn't speak English, right? So what name were they using? And without understanding, and these guys were all what? Verse 5 says they were all what? Jews, right? Right. So they were probably speaking Hebrew. This some of them would be speaking Hebrew, but some of them are coming, as we found, from all sorts of other places right. in the world. So no, no matter what language the name is spoken in, the, the importance always, is the name. The name right? is always the same. For example, how do we say Makal Gorbachev in English? Well, we can talk about that, whether you say Jesus or Yeshua or Messiah or, or whatever you want to say. The, the point is that we're calling upon the Lord, and I think he understands us according to our pronunciation. Okay? So, yeah, he, knows what, he knows what we're calling upon him. Okay? So, but we can get back to that. Let's deal with the question here in the text, which is, what do the apostles mean? What do they mean? Are they talking about the name of Jesus Christ? And if so, the revelation of who Jesus is is something drastic. Okay? Don't come in it from like 2007 and be, you know, with our with our Baltimore Catechism as our background. Imagine standing there as the Jews hearing what our Lord, what the apostles are saying. Okay? So, verse 39. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all that are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other words and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. 
and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. A side note, we don't have much time, and I want to talk about this name just a couple more times. But 3,000 were added to the Lord on that day. If you remember, for those that went through our Salvation History series, all the way back to Exodus and the Golden Calf, scratch way back there, we don't have time to go back to it right now, you recall what happened. The, golden, the sin of the Golden Calf took place. Moses came down from the mountain. He says, what have you done? Remember? And a group of men joined him. Do you remember who those were? The Levites. And why did the Levites join him? Because Moses was a Levite, remember? And the Levites gathered to him. You guys remember this? The Levites gathered to him. And it was that day, the text says, that the Levites were ordained as priests for the Lord. It was that day they were dedicated to the Lord. Before that, who were the priests? Yeah, the firstborn. The firstborn of the family was always the priest. But the sin of the golden calf was a cult of the firstborn. Some of you are remembering a little bit. Okay? It was that day that the firstborn priesthood was cut off for their sin, and the Levites were put in their place. Guess how many people fell that day of the firstborn? 3,000. So now, when the casting of lots, it was proper to the Levitical priesthood had taken place among the apostles for the election of the new apostle, Matthias. 3,000 are added. Possibly a reversal of what had taken place that day and a restoration of the firstborn priesthood, which we get later in Paul's epistle because Christ is our firstborn priest. Okay? Now, hold on. We've got to do this name thing real quick and then we're going to be done. We got to, let's just, verse uh, 41. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and, had, and held all things in common. And they sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. We're going to talk about that sharing all things in common more as we come back. Okay? Turn with me real quick, though, to verse 14. Verse 14. In the end. Or verse 13. Yeah, chapter 3, verse 13. We just got to do a couple verses here real quick to, to look a little bit more the same and we'll finish. Verse 13. And again, we're getting a little out of context. Yes, Acts chapter 3, verse 13. Come on, guys. Acts chapter 3, verse 13. We're in the same. We're just keep going here. The God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the author of life, 
whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong, whom you see and know. They have just raised somebody up that was sick. We're going to look at it more. Okay? Again, this reference back to the name. The apostles are uh, arrested, and they're brought before a trial. Okay? The last thing we're going to look at in chapter 4. We're going to go back and, and read a little more of the context of this, but i got to finish this point. Chapter 4. Peter is giving a, a response to the, to the men in front of him. He says, in verse, I'm sorry, chapter 4, verse 7. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Did you heal this man? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a cripple, by what means this man has been healed, be it known to you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, but which has become the head of the corner. And there is salvation in no one else. And there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Remember back to Joel and the reference to salvation by the name of the Lord. And here there is an explicit reference that this Lord being spoken of in Joel was indeed the same Jesus born of the Virgin Mary who died and rose from the dead. Okay? Let's, um... Well, what's the name? Jesus. Because, well, wait a second. Did, but, you know, I don't... Just a point for your folks. His name, Yehoshua, means Jehovah will save. Okay, absolutely. That's, a very, that's the important yeah. point here. In this Yahweh book. saves. Yahweh saves. So, we're going to come back next time. I don't want to get into a, the Messianic movement question. So, I know where you're coming from. I'm happy to talk to you about it. We can go out for dessert. I'd love to. So, um, why don't we conclude with that? If anyone has any questions, feel free to come forward. Stay for some wine and cheese and beer and water and friendship. Okay? Let's stand and conclude in prayer. In our Patris and Filius, Spirit of Sanctity, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. St. Luke, in our Patris and Filius, Spirit of Sanctity,